so we uh, started into our second discourse last week, our second uh, kind of sermon of Jesus's that he uh, that he delivers in the book of Matthew. It's called the uh, missionary discourse. We talked last week about how he sent them out. Um, but we talked about how this comes on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount. That if you don't get the Sermon on the Mount, then you'll really mess up the missionary discourse. If you don't understand coming out of the Sermon on the Mount that um, that your life is on sand, like it or not, and the only way to get on the rock is to ask Jesus um, for your for His life. For He is the one who builds on the rock, not us. So there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can earn. There's nothing we can uh, accomplish to make him love, love us. He loves us because he loves us. And that's the whole thing. And that's the hard part to grasp is that I don't have to earn anything. I don't have to, uh, you know, make him love me. There is no amount of, of uh, effort I could put in to earn his love. His love is unearnable. He just gives it freely because he loves us in Jesus Christ. And so when we get Jesus, we get the whole thing. And if we don't grasp that, then in the going, in the missional part, we'll go with this burden. We'll go with this, you know, and and we won't go with this freedom of, I cannot wait to share my Jesus with people. I cannot wait to share this freedom that I have found in Christ with others. So you've got to get the Sermon on the Mount before you go. Um, and so if you didn't listen to that, I recommend getting online and listen to that series because it, it's, uh, it is essential. And then last week we talked about, um, it was when he first sent them out. So this is our, the first of our go messages, the first of our missional messages. And we had some fun with it. We, uh, we did the, every point started with M. So I told you it was, this is my one sermon with cheese on it. This was super cheesy. I made every point start with M, um, which was really fun. So we talked about how he gave them their map. He sent them out and told them exactly where to go and where not to go. And that has an impact on us. Like God gives us a map. And a lot of us, the trouble we get into is when we try to save the whole world. We try to, you know, we get overwhelmed with the bigness of the thing rather than realizing God has given us a map. Sometimes that's just our kids. That's my map for now. I need to dump myself into my kids. Maybe it's our job. Maybe it's a, a little bigger map for, for some people. Who knows? But he, he does give us a map. He, told, he even told them, don't go to some places. Don't go to the Gentiles right now. Don't go to the Samaria right now. Right now, for this going, I want you to, to stick in this map and that that's important to us. He gave them their message that he said, and when you go out, go out saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He gave them this message, told them exactly what to say, that, that in this message is the kingdom of heaven. This is Jesus. This is, uh, this is God coming to earth and crashing into the kingdoms of this world. He gave them their methods, told them how to do it. When you do it, go doing good things. Go this way. Don't prepare for it. We talked about how he said, don't take extra money. Don't take extra shoes, blah, blah, blah. Go and trust. And we talked about how that means that he wants us to do things that are too big for us. God sends us out to do works that we can't do on our own. If, if, if all we set out to do is stuff that we can accomplish, when it's all said and done, we're going to feel like we're pretty great. But if we set out to do things that are too big for us, things that God has called us to do, um, especially as a church, then when it's all said and done, we have to look back and go, that was God. There's no way we could have pulled that off. Um, so he, said, he sends them to do things that they're not prepared for and even tells them don't prepare for it. Just go. Um, we talked about how he gave them their muscle. Um, he said, I'm giving you the power to cast out demons and overcome um, sickness and, and uh, raise the dead. And he tells them the spirit's going to go with them. So they go with this power. And then we talked about how he gave them a mob. He didn't send them out alone. He sent them out together in a, in a church. So, yeah, that, that was when I was like, that's just like nacho cheese poured on the end. I got five of them all with M's. Um, I don't normally do that. And I said this last week that sometimes it just jumps off the page and you're like, all right, I'll... 
I'll preach it that way. Um, but that was fun. So we called that message was called, mm, that's good. Mm, four M's, five M's. That's good. Um, we talked at the end how um, God uh, sent us out to be salt and to flavor things and how, you know, when you eat something that's salted, uh, you don't at the end go, man, that was some really good salt. You know, you, when you salt something, you say, man, that was some really good corn. You know, that, that the salt isn't what's supposed to stand out. So when we go out in Jesus' name as salt and light, we don't go out to stand out and to draw attention to us. We go out to make him taste better. And so we're actually going to play with that title. My title tonight is, mm, this must be good. That's going to make sense a little later. I'm not doing the M thing again, though. That's two weeks in a row. Um, will make me lactose intolerant. Um, you'll get that on the way home. Tonight we're, uh, uh, we're gonna, um, get into this. We've been in this kind of cell phone thing. You guys know, we've been, we did the bubbles and then we, last week we did the camera flip. You know, we've been, we've been on selfie mode in the Sermon on the Mount and we flipped it around to the front facing camera. So now we're no longer looking at us. We're looking out. And so I thought I would do another one. You guys get these? These emergency alerts? I mean, we all get notifications. Do you ever get the, the weather one that just pops up on your phone? Like, thunderstorm coming or something like that. That's what this passage feels like to me. It kind of feels like uh, like Jesus is saying, oh, by the way, here's what it's going to look like when you come out. Like it's this emergency alert and it's going to be ugly. They're going to beat you. They're going to, um, I mean, there's not a whole lot happy going on in this passage. There's not much encouraging. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. Men are going to deliver you to the authorities. You're going to be scourged. Um, you're going to be delivered up by your own family and put to death. Uh, you're going to be called worse than the devil. And so there's not a whole lot happy here. And it kind of makes you wonder what we should do with a passage like this. Because last week was awesome. He was like, I'm going to fill you up with power. You're going to cast out demons. You're going to be able to raise the dead. You're going to go forth and do these great things, blah, blah, blah. And it's almost like you're waiting for the other shoe to fall, right? You're waiting for the, um, okay, so what's the catch? And that's this week. So this is the, this is when it really comes home. So, um, so one thing I do want to say before we get too into this, and this is kind of important, is I don't want to try to draw like a direct parallel between these warnings and what we deal with. Because I have a, you know, we have a tendency um, to complain about persecution as Christians in America. And we have to remember we live in a country that pretty much allows us to worship Jesus as we see fit. You know, I think we've got to be real careful that we don't go, yeah, I get that passage. Persecution is terrible. You know, they won't let my kid pray in school anymore. It's terrible. You know. That's that's not really what he's talking about here. You know, um, what was some more I said? You know, my company won't let me witness my coworkers. I've heard that one a lot. You know, like that's a terrible persecution. No matter how many letters I write, they keep playing inappropriate TV shows and R-rated movies on cable television, which I pay to have brought into my house. That's Starbucks switched from Merry Christmas to Happy Holidays. That was atrocious. Like that's the kind of stuff we deal with in America. So I want to make sure that we don't like think that that's the same as being scourged and drugged before the authorities and beaten, you know, so I don't want to, I don't want to cheapen what they went through and what a lot of people in the world still go through as Christians by pretending like here in America, we deal with some of the similar stuff because we really don't. Um, oh, back up. I'm not ready. I got, I got, there we go. I got a newbie back there. <laughs> um, so, uh, so we got to make sure that we do that first. But at the same time, I don't want to just say, well, that was a different time. We live in a different world now, so it's okay to just kind of ignore this passage. Because I think there's some great stuff, and I think God has a really neat message for us out of this. So we're not going to just dismiss it either um, and skip it. So first one, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull out some high points that jumped out at me, 
And then we're going to take the whole thing and wrap it up and kind of see what this whole passage kind of has to say to us. So first, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And I love this imagery. Anytime the Bible kind of pulls up the sheep, it, it's cool. Um, this is a really familiar um, passage. It even kind of draws you back to the 23rd Psalm where it's like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, and then later in the Psalm, he says, you, you prepare a table bef- for me before my enemies. You know, so it, it's, it's kind of that sheep before wolves imagery that, that holds in the scripture, that part of following God is that, you know, you're his sheep and sometimes he sits you right in front of the wolves. Um, and so I like that. You know, so this is, the, this whole passage is, is kind of about that. It sets the tone. Like you're going out as sheep amongst wolves. You are the one Raiders fan at Arrowhead. Like that's the, that's kind of the picture he's sending here. You're going out into enemy territory. And last week we talked about how, um, he sent him out with this kingdom message. He says, go tell them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Send them out saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we don't catch this because we're used to talking about the kingdom of heaven, but that's very subversive talk. Like he's basically saying there's another king. Like if you, if we went, you know, right now over to a Middle Eastern country and we just walked the streets saying kingdom of America is here. We're taking over. The kingdom of America is clashing into this country. Like, blah, blah, blah. You would not last long. They would, they would catch the subversive talk there to them. If you said, you know, our kingdom is coming to this place right now and we're going to, you know, and we're slowly going to take over. We are going, we're, that's why we're here right now is to take over your kingdom with our kingdom. In, in real world language, that's very subversive. Like if you tried to do that in a Middle Eastern country, you probably wouldn't stay on the street long because that's, you know, they would catch that. And that's what's happening here. He's sending them out saying, you know, go saying there's another kingdom. There's like we are taking over. This is like in, and we know the end of the story. The book of Revelation tells us that when they open the blow, the seventh trumpet or something, it, it's going to say, and the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, that there's going to come a day when that kingdom will finally overthrow the kingdoms of this world, which is exciting. But he sends them out with this kind of um, combative uh, idea that you're not just um, going out to, you know, to pass out flyers or somebody. You're advancing a kingdom in another kingdom, and that's going to mean conflict. You never bump one kingdom into another kingdom without being, without a conflict, ultimately without a war. And so that's kind of what he's preparing them for here. And he lets them know this is not a siege war. This is not just sit in our churches and tuck in and, you know, make sure that we point the stained glass windows in so you can't see the beauty from out. That's the only bummer. I love stained glass, but if the image is always inside, I always want to flip it and go, let's show the world the beauty and we'll look at the backside, but that's a whole nother sermon. Um, anyway, um, so the, uh, so this isn't a siege war. This is a, this is a, a moving war. This is an advancement that he sends them out to do this. So we're supposed to go out um, and so what's crazier is uh, he sends them out as defenseless sheep. And so that's the, kind of the irony or the, the tension here is that he's sending them out, you know, with this kind of subversive, combative language as sheep and as this, you know, maybe the most harmless, innocent of animals. And he and he says, uh, uses that kind of metaphor, be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Um, my, my favorite part of... Uh, uh, of this is they is that when he says this, you know, go out as wise as serpent and as harmless as doves, they don't know it yet, but he actually lives this out. This is the this is the best picture of Jesus' life. 
I mean, this is everybody that bumped into him. It, kept, it keeps saying, and Jesus, knowing what's in their hearts, you know, and, and, and discerning their thoughts, he said, like, this is the this is a super shrewd, like, wise person who, you know, when people are talking behind his back, he's like, what are you guys talking about? Like, they're fighting over who's going to be the greatest. And he's like, hey, what are you guys talking about? Like, I mean, this is he's easily as shrewd as a serpent. And yet he stands before Pilate and he goes, don't you realize I could call down legions of angels if I wanted to? That's not what I'm doing. He's harmless as a dove. He just goes like a lamb to the slaughter, it says. Um, and so he, he lives out this image of being as wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. You couldn't get anybody wiser um, or more harmless. So, uh, so the Gospels are full of watching Jesus do this. Um, nobody could manipulate him because he was always one step ahead. Every time they tried, so they came to him testing him, saying... And he always, he always beat him. Like he, there was nobody more shrewd than Jesus. So we're supposed to go with this like uh, warrior attitude, but completely harmless at the same time. Um, so I don't know exactly what that's supposed to look like in our day, but it's, uh, I know that a lot of times we miss. And so we're going to talk about that for the rest of this time. So um, I do think it's important uh, to note that Jesus sends his followers out. He makes it clear that um, they are to go out in his name, that they're supposed to move and advance in this, being fully cunning, fully informed, fully educated. You know, we don't go out in this kind of naive, you know, like, like dummies, but at the same time, um, so we go out shrewd, wise, thinking people, like that we go out fully um, engaged and yet somehow harmless as a dove. So Jesus has established the tone. Now he's going to go into more detail. I'm just going to kind of highlight what jumped out at me. Uh, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in the synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Now, as we look at this warning, Jesus um, starts getting a little more specific. This isn't like vague sheep snake talk, you know, with metaphors. He's getting real specific here, actually naming some of the things that are going to happen. Good old fashioned details. Um, he says you'll be taken to the councils and beaten. And here's what's interesting. We got two, we kind of got two worlds going on here. We've got the synagogue. So this is the inside people. Because remember, these are Jews. And he tells them, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans. Stay with the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he goes, they're going to take you to the synagogues. That's inside people. Your own people are going to persecute you. And then he goes, and then you'll go out before the Gentiles. Those are outside people. So he's kind of talking about two different levels of persecution here. Not only are you going to be taken up in-house, you're going to be kind of picked on in-house, but you're going to be picked on out there too in the secular world, both. So we got to uh, you know, kind of be cautious about that. And, uh, but this isn't the only cool part of this passage. I want to highlight that bottom line. I think there it is. Um, he says that we're going out as a testimony to them. That's the synagogue people. That's the Sanhedrin and the Gentiles. Um, so all this abuse that's done by the insiders and the outsiders, all this abuse they're enduring, being taken before authorities, being beaten, being all this happening, um, is done so that people will have the opportunity, both the insiders and the outsiders, to hear the gospel. So he's saying you're going you're to be arrested so that they can also hear the gospel. And we actually see this play out in, in Acts. Paul gets arrested 
And they, and Luke in the book of Acts actually gives us a couple of his trials that he goes through. And there's once when, I think it's with Agrippa, where he witnesses to Agrippa. And Agrippa's like, man, you almost made me a Christian. Like, you just about got me. Like, that he was, he was testifying just by, by going through the trial, by answering the questions. They're like, why are you here? Why did they arrest you? And he's like, let me tell you why they arrest me. Because I believe in Jesus. And he would start telling them about Jesus. I believe in the one that God raised from the dead. And blah, blah, blah. And he would give them this whole story. And now these, up, these kind of on top governor people are suddenly hearing the gospel. And we find out later that um, some of the people were meeting in the wife of one of the main treasurers of Rome. Like they, they had made it pretty high up and they were getting funded by this because the gospel had gone up. So the big thing is, and we, we also uh, we see it from Peter um, talking about being the very first arrest when they when he heals the guy outside the temple they take him into the synagogue and it's it's like the second sermon uh, like the third sermon he preaches is to the Sanhedrin he gets to give them the the message so we actually get to see this exact thing play out where persecution leads to somebody hearing the gospel and I think this means something to us because it means that when we're on mission with God even the bad things that happen to us can have purpose and that's what I want to grab here, that even, even the, the worst things we can imagine suddenly have purpose. We're going we're gonna to stay on that for a little bit and come back to it, uh, too, because if our lives are committed to advancing the kingdom of God, um, then we'll be shocked, I think, how he can turn some of our hardest times into advancement for the kingdom. Like some of the worst things we go for, when we're, we go through, and some of the most terrible things when we're and we can't imagine where he is and, and what is happening and why am I going through this and, and, you know, what has gone wrong in my life and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden something happens and you realize that was the very key to moving on to the next step. That, that pain, that suffering, whatever was the key to advancing the gospel in this new way and to doing this kind of new, God doing this new thing in our lives. And so uh, I think it's important that that we get from this, you know, Paul, it's because of this that Paul was able to say um, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called to his purpose. I think a, a few times of getting beaten, and we talked about this, um, actually we're going to talk about that in a minute, but Jesus makes it very clear that when we're on mission with him and the worst seems to happen, even if we're arrested, beaten, put on trial, where it feels like we've been completely abandoned with God, that in truth we're actually still on mission. We have not somehow been abandoned. We have not somehow been left behind. God hasn't left us. We're still completely where we're supposed to be. I love how Eugene Peterson puts this verse in the message. He says it this way. Don't be upset when they uh, haul you before the civil authorities. Without knowing it, they have done you and me a favor and given you a platform for preaching kingdom news. That's a pretty good translation. Like without knowing it, they've played right into my hands. You're right where I wanted you. Now, we don't get hauled off. You know, we don't actually have it that bad. But all of us go through tough things. All of us struggle. We all have hard times. And, and I don't want to minimalize that in any way. But if we're all going to struggle, I would rather struggle on mission with God, knowing that this is part of his you know, step and knowing that even when things go wrong, he's going to advance it into his good, into, into good for the kingdom. Because what's worse is to struggle and not have a purpose for it, not have a reason. I'd much rather be on mission with God and know that when things go wrong, 
it still has a purpose. It can still be redeemed. So I don't want to minimize people's pain when they go through bad things. But I would hope that the tears that we cry in our pain might be, I like to think they might be watering the seed of the next good thing God wants to do. That's my hope, is that when we suffer, it might be leading to something good. In fact, this is such a part of the plan that Jesus tells his, exa- his disciples exactly what to do when they do get arrested. He says, but when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you will speak. For it will be given to you in that hour and you should, what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of the Father who speaks in you. This is one of my favorite passages because of the tension that it provides. You guys know I love tension, you know. Um, the fun part of the tension is that Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen. He tells them, you know, hey, this is how this is going to look when you go out. So you can plan for it. Like, so now, you, now you're prepared. Now you know exactly what's going to happen. Only here's the deal. Don't plan for it. Like, don't, don't think ahead of time how you're going to handle it, what you're going to say, because it'll be given you. So it's almost like he, tell, he tells them plan to not plan is almost what he says here. Like, this is going to happen. And now that you know it's going to happen, don't prepare for it. Don't plan for it. It'll be given to you in that hour. You'll know in time. The toughest part is this is a real, um, this isn't just a Zen riddle. This is like a real tension in the Christian life that's actually kind of hard to play out. This is what makes running a church hard is you want to plan. You want to think. You want to make sure you're making sound decisions. You want to do things right. You know, you want to be above board on everything. And at the same time, you want to leave space for the Holy Spirit to come in and say, this is what we're doing. And you go, okay, we're going to obey that. It makes it hard to write a message that way. I study, I get into the scripture, I read commentaries, I do what I can. And the whole time I'm like begging God to speak through me, like like to, to say what he wants to say through me. And I, I put in my effort and at the same time, I, you know, who, I don't know where I start and where God picks up. I'm not, I have no clue. There's times when I'll say stuff and I'll, I'll leave and, and like, that one just dropped. That was a terrible message. I don't know what happened. I just wasn't in it tonight. Someone's like, that was awesome. It totally changed my life. And I'm like, which part? Like, like what? And it, it's because it's, it had to be God doing it because, you know, it, it clearly wasn't me. And, but at the same time, I don't just come in on Sundays and stand here and go, okay, God, start talking because I got nothing. Like, I do my part and, and God has to do his part. And it's, it's a weird tension to plan not to plan. Like, to, to both, you know, Judy and I do this all the time. We talk about this almost every week. Like, Judy puts a lot of effort into picking the songs and blah, blah, but she doesn't know what I'm going to say. She never knows what I'm going to preach. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll give her like a vague, hey, let's make the, the response song at the end, something about this. Like I'll give her kind of a, I'm kind of going in this direction. Because part of it is because I don't finish my message till after we've already had rehearsals. So I, you know, I got to pick a song pretty early in the week before I even really know what I'm going to say. So I'm like, I'm kind of feeling it go this direction. And so she looks for a song that kind of fits. But almost every week we sit there and like, did you notice how this song and this song and this song were all perfect for what, you know, you know it's almost like God just wove the thing together. And it's, it's fun to watch, but... It's, it, it's a weird tension to plan not to plan, to leave room for God, to live in a world where you want God to move constantly. You're hoping he guides every step. You're hoping he tells you, you know, what to do and where to go and how to do it. And when you talk to somebody, you're like, God, fill my mouth. Like, cause I want them to hear your words. I want to change somebody's heart. I want to do something good. But at the same time, we still have to put forth all the effort and planning. And so it's, it's a weird tension that happens. Um, we want to use good biblical wisdom um, and obey the Holy Spirit all at the same time, which is kind of tough. Um, 
So the disciples are in this place uh, where they want the Holy Spirit to speak through them. But in order to do that, they have to go. That's kind of what he tells them. He, that, that's the hard part. This is almost like Abraham when God said, get up and go to the country that I will show you. Sometime in the future, you'll know. Until then, just get up and go. That's the toughest part. Is we would love to say, you know, okay, God, I'm ready to speak. Tell me what to say and I'll go speak. And he's like, no, you go and then I'll fill your mouth. Like when, it, when, it's, when it's time, that's a tough one. Um, he tells him, if you go out on mission, if you, if you get out there and you move, you'll get a message. And that's, and that's, so there's a weird dynamic where we want to plan, but we also have to be in motion. We have to move. And part of the moving is also the planning and, and the Holy Spirit talking and us doing our work. And it all kind of comes together in this thing called the mission of God. And it's, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting t- tension. But the motion is important. I, uh, um, the church we were at before we planted this church, um, we loved it. We loved the people. It was, uh, but the biggest, the toughest part of it for us is that it was easy. It was, it was really easy. It, the, everything just kind of fit. So we could go on Sundays. We could sit and just take it easy and just let them, you know, it was uh, a really kind of intellectual thing. And I kind of dug that part and it kind of fed me intellectually. And I, and I enjoyed it. And it took absolutely no effort. And I didn't realize we were there for quite a while, but I had kind of fallen asleep almost and just kind of taken it easy. And we went out with uh, some friends, realtor, this realtor couple we've known for years and years and years. And, um, and they sat down, they were kind of, and just kind of bummed. And, uh, and I was like, what's up? And the wife was, you could tell she was super emotional, hadn't been sleeping much. And she said, she has two sons. And she said, one suddenly swears he's an atheist and the other has decided he's gay and I don't know which one's worse and blah, blah, blah. And she was just all beat up. And I, and I just, it, my heart was broken for her and I just started speaking life. And I don't even, I don't even remember anything I said, but it took 45 minutes to get it out. And I was getting pumped up and Esther, and so all this is going on and I'm, you know, and I'm like, you know, like trying to convince her how much God loves her and how much God loves his kids and how much, you know, he's, how much some of these things we think are so huge are tiny to God and how much I almost guarantee that, you know, God has a bigger problem with some of my attitude issues than he does with your son's orientation and blah, blah, like this is crazy. You're looking at all the wrong stuff and I'm getting passionate and I'm getting worked up and blah, blah. And my wife's sitting next to me crying, which this is pretty normal. When I talk a lot of times, I make her cry. So I figured it was something I said and I'll work it out later. Like surely I offended her and she'll tell me later and I'll apologize. That's kind of our routine. And, so we, we do our thing and, and we leave and we get in the car and she, I was like, and so literally I go, what'd I say? And she was like, what are you talking about? I was like, well, you were crying. I figured I offended you somewhere. And she's like, no, that's not why I was crying at all. And I was like, why are you crying? Because I'm the crybaby. I'm the one that cries all. She doesn't normally cry. And so that's kind of backwards. And, and she goes, I haven't seen you do that in five years. And I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, I haven't seen you got, get that animated and worked up. and passionate in five years. She goes, I had no idea you were dying. She goes, I had no idea you weren't moving. She goes, we have to start a church. We have to. It's time. And because, you know, this is something I've wanted to do forever and ever. And and she's always been a little bit resistant because she knows my workaholic tendencies when it comes to ministry. And she's afraid if I had a church, she'd never see me again. And I would just be working 24-7, which is actually exactly how it's turned out. So that's awesome. No, but... um. It's uh, so she's 
She was like, I had no idea you had died. Like I, I, that used to be you every day. That used to be you every Friday at small group. That used to be you all the time. She goes, and that's just gone away. And she was like, you have to go. You have to move. You have to, you have to do something because she was like, I forgot what that guy was like. And so, so a lot of times the spirit of God reacts to movement is what I'm trying to say. A lot of times sitting, um, puts that to sleep. And it's scary. One of the scariest verses in all the Bible to me is, and, and I kid you not, this one terrifies me. It haunts me. I think about it way more than I should. And it's when Samson had gotten his hair cut and, you know, he had, had she, you know, Delilah had done the whole, hey, why are you so strong? He's like, oh, if you tied me with this kind of rope, I'd be weak. And so she does it. And this guy is the biggest idiot on the planet because he kept falling for it. And, and uh, so finally he's like, fine, if you were to cut my hair, I'd be weak. So she cuts her hair to sleep. Philistines come in just like they had every other time and they're like, she's like, Samson, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. It says Samson jumped up and it, and it says he did not realize the Spirit of God had left him. And that is the scariest thing on the planet to me. I don't even know what it means theologically. I just know that concept terrifies me because the Spirit of God that makes such a huge crash on the way in seems to slip out the back door on the way out. And one day you're sitting there going, how did I get here? Why am I living like this? What happened to me? Like I'm, all this stuff is happening again. Like I'm, I'm back in my old ways. I thought I was beyond all this. And here I am again in this mess. And you don't even realize that the Spirit of God had left. And I don't mean left like you're going to hell. I just mean he's not active in your life anymore. That things aren't moving. And, and it had happened to me. And Esther saw it before I did. And she was like, you have to move. You have to do something. You have to, we have to get you moving because that can't die. And so that's why we're here. That's why this church is here. Because um, when I started moving, God started talking. And I think that's the way it works. I think he, he works in our movement. So we can't just sit and wait for God to do something awesome. We step out in faith and watch him step in. Um, and suddenly he's moving through us. Like it's not our, it's not our effort even though we were the ones that kind of decided to go. It's, it's, a, it's a weird blend. I wish I could define the tension exactly, but I know, it's, I know we can't do it without God, and I know God usually waits till we move. That's all I know. Those are all the things I know. I don't know anymore. But, so we can, but we can start to... Okay, so back to our passage. Most of that was rambling, but um, we can tend to get fatalistic about this, and this is what I want to watch, because we can tend to go... Okay, so the Christian life, we're supposed to get picked on and beat on and blah, blah, blah. So this is just, this is our lot in life and we just go out and take it, um, which is why I love this next part because Jesus adds a twist. Um, he says, when you're persecuted or when they persecute you in the cities, flee to another. Most assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone to all the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. There's another little tension point that's fun. Jesus tells them that persecution is coming what it should look like, how they should act when it comes, when they get caught up in it. And then he tells them that when it comes, run from it. <laughs> like flee, take off, go to another city. So we're not supposed to, uh, there's nothing fatalistic about the Christian life here. We're not supposed to just kind of stand and be passively abused. You know, we're not just supposed to stand there and, and be a doormat. Like there is some, there is some wisdom to this. Like if, if, uh, if you can avoid being scourged, I recommend it. Like, I mean, if you can flee it, do so. Like, nobody, you don't just say, well, that's part of being a Christian. Where's my beatings? You know, no, you, you run if you can. You get away from it if you can. He tells them to flee. 
Um, and the beautiful part is we see this in the book of Acts 2. This is one of the other dynamics that we see actually play out exactly like this in the book of Acts. The persecution comes. Peter's arrested. They throw him in jail. They beat him. He's preaching to authorities while the rest of the church is running out the back door because the persecution is picked up. And that's how the gospel gets into the Samaria for the first time. It's Christians running from persecution. And when they get to Samaria, they start preaching again. And now Samaria hears the gospel. Then the Holy Spirit comes down and people are getting filled with the Spirit and they have to come up to make sure it's valid, make sure everything that's happening is actually the real thing. And it is. And then they get, you know, the last time Peter is arrested, angels break him out. And this time he, you know, he's free. He knows if he stays there, he's not going to stay free for long. So he runs. He heads up to Antioch. And now the gospel heads up the coast. And pretty soon it's going to go across the, the northern edge and over into Europe. And, and most of this is fleeing persecution. This is most of it's people obeying this verse. When they persecute you in the city, flee to another. And when you do so, take the gospel with you. And so this is one of the ways God seems to, and I think we talked about this last year. I love the word that they use for um, persecution in the book of Acts. It's the only time it's used this way. They use the word, or no, no, no. Uh, I think it's persecuted. When they were persecuted, they use the word scattered. They were scattered like seed. Every other time that word is, is used in the New Testament, it's referring to seed or planting something. It was almost like these, they weren't being persecuted. They were being scattered. They were being planted somewhere else. And it came in the form of persecution. But it was really God saying, I want you in Samaria. You're clearly not going to go on your own. So here comes the persecution and that'll, that should push you up there. And so what this means is, and this is what I love the most, is when we're on mission with God, when we're, when we're trying to do God's will, when we're trying to advance the kingdom of God, everything, whether we're caught and captured and beaten, that has a purpose. And whether we escape and move on, that has a purpose. Like there, there is nothing within the mission of God that doesn't have purpose. That when we're on mission with Jesus, when we're advancing his kingdom, everything has purpose. So we take the gospel with us. Every move, the one, uh, the one thing we tend to, you know, think about is, is, uh, how much of how much of this movement is us and how much of it's God and how much of it and I think usually we get caught up in in these big questions that are totally above our pay grade. Like no one that does this is trying to think of where they're going to take the gospel next. You know, they're not going, let's sit down with a map and make a strategic plan on where the best place to spread the gospel is. No, they're running for their lives. And then when they get to a safe place they stop and preach. That's basically what this looks like. This isn't big planning. This is that wherever we go, you make a move for a job. You preach the gospel when you get there. You talk to people about Jesus. You advance the kingdom. You do good. You take care of the poor. You do what you can. And then all of a sudden, you know, something happens and you have to change jobs and they move you somewhere else. You know, awesome. When you get there, you do good. You advance the kingdom. You spread the gospel. You take care of the poor. You do all the things you do. And and a lot of times it's not, you know, the big decisions. It's just, Doing, being on mission with God wherever you are for that moment. So I think sometimes we get caught up in the pressure of making the right decisions all the time. When we make a big decision, we can tend to feel like the weight of the world is on our shoulders. Like, man, if I get this wrong, you know, I may not be successful. If I get this wrong, you know, I may not, you know, my, I may not achieve all my goals, right? We've, we carry these decisions like everything rides on them. 
And the best thing about your, your goals, your success being wrapped up in the mission of God, that for you to be a success, it means being on mission with God for your life means that the decisions you make ultimately don't really affect the completion of your ultimate goal. Now, if your measure of success is to be rich, then your decisions have a big impact. Like you're, you're the, the, making the right decisions at the right time is kind of everything. If, you're, if your goal in life is to be successful and powerful, then yeah, you have to make all the right decisions on the way there. And all it takes is, you know, I love when we get politicians and they find something 30 years in their past and they blow it up. I mean, that doesn't really exist anymore. Like now it seems like you can do whatever you want. But it used to be, you know, did, you guys remember the Bill Clinton thing, did you inhale? You guys remember that argument? I was like, come on, are we seriously doing this? But it used to be like that was like you had to get everything right to get up there. The best thing about being on mission with God is that doesn't exist. The pressure's not on you. Like you just stay on mission with God. And if you make a, if you make a bad decision financially, you are no less on mission with God than you were if you made the right decision financially. And we get caught up in, oh, did I, is, did, did I make the right or wrong decision? Is God pleased with me? Is he not pleased with me? The reality is, if your goal is to worship Jesus and advance the kingdom of God, then all those other decisions don't matter. It takes the weight off of those. Because what, what I'm going for um, is Jesus. That's what I'm going for. I mean, I always think about um, the, the apostles. Like, if, if they had any idea, you know, these guys mostly looked like they were just bumbling around trying to figure out what to do next. You know, you, by the time they started writing, they seemed to kind of have some theology worked out, seemed to have it together. But when you read the book of Acts, it mostly looks like they're going, I, I don't know what to do now. What do we do? You know, they would go into, someone got saved in, in Samaria and they were like, we're not, were we supposed to go to Samaria? I don't even know if we're supposed to go to Samaria. So they would go up and, and they would go, how do you know you're saved? And the Holy Spirit fell. They were like, oh, I guess that counts. And so then now the gospel's in Samaria. And then a Gentile gets saved. Cornelius gets saved. And they're like, and they yelled at Peter, like, what are you doing giving the gospel to Gentiles? He's like, dude, the Holy Spirit came and got me, told me to go. I went, the Holy Spirit fell. What am I supposed to do? And they're like, yeah, that is a good one. Huh? Like, they're... These aren't guys with a, with a master plan. These aren't guys that, you know, have this all mapped out. They're just fumbling around. And I always think it's hilarious, like, what they would have said if you had gone and told them, someday there's going to be giant basilicas named after you. Like, Peter, there's going to be a St. Peter's Basilica. It's going to be this huge, gorgeous thing, and the world's best artists are going to do stuff in it, and we're going to name it after you. I guarantee this back... Woods fishermen would have laughed at you and gone a basilica, dude. I'm a fisherman. Like I'm from Galilee. Like it's the nowhere of nowhere. It's the backwoods of nowhere. Why would they ever name a building after me? You know. But that's not what he was after. He was after advancing the kingdom. And Jesus told him, like, you're gonna have. He got well, like one of the specific ones. He's like, you're gonna have a te- have really terrible death. Like they're gonna they're gonna take you where you don't want to go and 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 do bad things. And, and he's like, okay, I guess I'm in. Like, you know, no way would Peter have been in his mind at that point. He was just trying to stay on mission with God. That's all he was trying to do is just advance with God, which is what allows Jesus to wrap up this whole pericope with this statement. He says, therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. 
You know what the most commonly occurring command in Scripture is? The command that Scripture gives us more than any other command in real command language, imperative language. You need any guesses? Fear not. Do not be afraid. That's the most commonly given command in Scripture. Do not be afraid. Fear not. I don't believe doubt is the opposite of faith. I think doubt is kind of essential for faith. I think you're supposed to wrestle a little. Otherwise, it wouldn't be faith. Like if it was obvious, then it wouldn't take any faith. It would just be obvious. Then you're just believing in your own rational ability to figure it out. Like, sure, it makes perfect sense. I believe it. For there to be faith, there kind of has to be some question, some doubt. Like I'm not 100% sure, but I'm attaching myself to it with everything I've got. I don't think doubt is the opposite of faith. I think fear is the opposite of faith. I think fear is, is, is the other side, the, the opposite. And this passage is why, um, why I think that's important. If your whole goal is making money, then you have every reason to fear. If that's your end game, if your end game is money, then you should live a fearful life. Because if, if there's anything that, that our economy should show you is that there's almost no amount of money that's untouchable. Like, that you could lose it in a day. Or you could be like the guy that Jesus talks about who's like, has so much money, builds more barns for more money, and he fills that up. And he's like, ah, now I can take it easy. I've got everything I want. And he died that night. Like, if your goal is money, then yeah, live afraid because you could lose it at any time. And that's scary. If your goal is a good reputation, be afraid. Live afraid. Because all it takes is one person to say one thing. One accusation. One, you know, and you're trying to defend yourself and then it hits social media and it's over. Like, if your goal is a good reputation, then be afraid. If your goal in life is safety, making sure you're never at risk, you're never going to lose anything, you're never going to be hurt, your kids are never going to be hurt. I, I, I walk around this defensive posture because I want to make sure I'm safe. Then live afraid. Absolutely be afraid. Because that's a, that's a myth. There's so many people that follow everything and they get hit by a truck. And you're like, that was the safest person I knew and that truck came out of nowhere and blah, blah, whatever. Like, but if your goal in life, your whole goal is a life of worship of the one who saved you and to advance the kingdom of God however long you're on earth and to share the love of Jesus with anybody you meet, then what is there to be afraid of? Like ultimately it comes down to what your goals are. Because even if the worst happens, you still do what you set out to do. You still accomplish your goal. They arrest you and they take you before the authorities and beat you and scourge you and you... Tell them how much Jesus loves them. And you worship doing it. You, Like Paul and Silas, you know, there's a story in the book of Acts where Paul and Silas are chained. They've been arrested. They've been beaten. They're chained. And, I, and th- like this story always, because I have a twisted sense of humor, I always picture Silas, you know, them being beaten. They finally put them in there and lock them up. It's quiet. And Silas starts to go, Paul goes, shut up, Silas. And Paul's like, what's a bulwark? I don't know. It's in a song. And they keep singing. Next thing you know, Paul starts joining him. Then they start harmonizing. Like, you know, and then they're just singing. And then the chains fall off. And they're free. 
And then the soldier realizes that they're free and he knows that according to Roman law, he gets their punishment if they go free. So he's got his sword and he's getting ready to fall on it. And Paul goes, whoa, don't do that. We're good. Like we're here. We're not leaving. We don't want you to die. And so they stay. They go back to the guy's house. Him and his whole household get saved. Like, and it starts with getting arrested and beaten. Like you can't, there is nothing that can happen to you when you're on mission with God that, that, doesn't have purpose. If that's your goal, what would you ever have to be afraid of? If your goal is to be on mission with God and to preach the gospel and to worship Jesus, then even when you're in stocks and you're strapped down, you can, you can do your, you can absolutely accomplish your goals. Like I'm chained in a prison, but my goals were to worship God. So I break out the old Methodist hymns and I start worshiping God because that's my goal, Right? Every day has meaning. We can accomplish our goal in every single circumstance if our goal is to worship the one who saved us. And then we die a complete and utter success. When our days come to an end, we know I was successful. I absolutely accomplished everything I set out to do. This is how Paul was able to say this in Romans. Who shall, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. He's talking about this verse. Like, what could you do to me to mess up my plans, to mess up my goals, to make me unsuccessful? I have absolutely nothing to fear. Fear is absolutely illogical in this atmosphere. So Jesus tells them not to fear. When they're on mission with him, there is no reason to fear. I love this image of reckoning. I wanted to park here for a while, but I don't think we have time. Um... But what a comfort when one day we get to see, you know, everything that, that's under the surface. When one day we recognize that moms were the greatest missionaries on the planet. Like, in fact, I almost wanted to do like a Mother's Day sermon. I was going to do like, um, like missionary moms is what I want to do and have moms come up and like just, you know, missionaries do and they like show you the pictures of, of the, of where they are like, have a mom come up and do that and be like, that's us at the breakfast table. I was trying to do a devotion. She was throwing her cereal at him. But, you know, because that's missions work. That's what's happening. Like, that's absolutely some of the most important work. And I love, I don't know what's wrong today. I love that the idea of seeing one day all of that, seeing that, that dads were like the greatest CEOs on the planet and moms were missionaries and, and, and saying, you don't understand. You guys thought that these people were the greats, you know, blah, blah. But this is what was fighting the darkness. Like all of this, everything that's hidden will someday be revealed that this work here is what was advancing the kingdom. This everyday work of raising your kids right and loving your neighbor and being a decent human being and doing your job with integrity like this 
is what fought the darkness. This is what advanced the kingdom and held back the chaos. Like, and, and yeah, there was a few huge names and they did awesome things and that's great, but that was a drop in the bucket. It was centuries of moms that, that saved the world. You know, centuries of dads being good dads and sticking around that saved the world. Like that's, that's what I feel when I see him say that someday everything that's uh, revealed, everything that's covered will be revealed and whatever. <laughs> um, so how do we respond to this? Um, as I was trying to get a handle on this passage, you know, because it's tough when you sit down to, to preach a passage and, and it's all doom and gloom. Pretty much the whole thing is, here's how bad it's going to be. Thanks for coming. Like, that's a, that's a tough one to preach, you know. Um, so when I was trying to get a handle on it, I actually got the response first. I actually felt like I knew exactly where I wanted to go with this before I'd even really spent much time studying. So it's been it's kind of a, a backward study for me. And I actually spent some time... I in economics this week, I spent some time digging into economics a little. I actually called Bill and was like, hey, I need like a Cliff Notes because Bill's done quite a bit of economics. He's hiding behind that curtain, by the way. He's running slides for me. Um, yeah, there he is. <laughs> um, so I actually asked Bill, I was like, dude, I need like a Cliff Notes version on uh, on economics. Like I need a, a total like TED talk on product valuation, like 20 minutes. That's all I got. And uh, And so we talked about some stuff because um, supply and demand, you know, only goes so far. So I wanted to to dig in a little deeper. And as I was digging, I also wound up in psychology a little bit. Psychology, um, and psychologists are the biggest pessimists on the planet. Um, they have a theory called cost-reward analysis, whereby they think that um, every good thing we do, um, are, we first run through a cost-reward analysis. So we basically say, what's it going to cost me? And, how, and, and what good am I going to get out of it? Like every little, every little thing we do. So even if it's, and they, and they believe that like Salvation Army is totally capitalizing on this. Because they're ringing a bell and we're like, eh, it cost me some pocket change and I get to feel good the rest of the day. So we, you know, so it's a, it's a cost reward thing. They don't think, psychologists don't believe, or psychologists who believe in cost reward analysis don't believe that we do anything out of pure virtue. We just, we're like, and so, you know, if we believe, man, if I don't do this, I don't go to heaven. And, you know, now we have a different cost reward thing. And so they think everything psychologically, any good we do is done on this cost reward basis, um, which is a little, you know, pessimistic, but. It's there. And then I got into kind of business and management, and they have a thing called cost-benefit analysis, um, which is defined as a systematic approach to estimate the strength and weakness of alternatives. So you pros and, it's a fancy business way of saying pros and cons. Like you sit down and, and what's it going to cost? What's the upside going to be? And you weigh it out, you know, that way. And pretty soon I found out that everything ultimately is going to point back at economics. And I, so I wound up there. And I learned that we have different ways of valuing things that break down ultimately to commodity or differentiation. Bill's going to jump in if I get something wrong. Commodity pricing or differentiation pricing. And what that means is in commodity pricing, the price is basically, it is what it is. And to make, so this is what this commodity costs. And it's, uh, it's pretty much, it's set by supply and demand. And ultimately, if you want to make more money, you have to, use cheaper labor, you have to use different methods or blah, blah. Um, you have to innovate your production or something, but ultimately this is what it is and, and you've got to do some tweaking if you want to make more or less money. Um, and then there's what we call differentiation, which is when you um, attempt to separate yourself from alternatives 
and make yourself different. So you want to say, this is kind of my class, but I'm really, I'm different and I'm over here. Apple is the master of this. It's a computer ultimately. And yet, you know, there's 50 billion PCs and Apple's like, we're Apple. Like in, and they, they try to separate themselves from PCs so they don't, so nobody thinks of it in terms of computers anymore. They think of it as PCs, which is a million different companies. And then Apple, you know, then you've got your Apple products. And when you open an Apple product, like even the way they wrap it is like, ooh, this is different. Like, and it's fun. Like you just, ooh, man, look at these little flaps and things. Like, you know, you buy a computer and it's just styrofoam, you know, but when you get an Apple product, it's like even the unwrapping is neat. And it makes you feel like this thing is totally worth the three times the price that I paid for it. Like, because they, and so they've, they've somehow found a way to separate themselves and create like a differentiation thing. Bill said it's, uh, in coffee, it's that way. Like, you know, coffee is a commodity. They have the commodity price. But then if you do, you know, if you change your sourcing, you know, that we, we buy from, you know, particular small farms and blah, blah, blah. You change your sourcing, you change your roasting methods, blah, blah, and you create a, a, a separation between you and the bulk coffee. And in that differentiation, your value goes up, right? And so that's another thing. And then there's the third one, which is the wild card that nobody ever really knows how to predict. Um, and it's, I didn't have a fancy name for it. It's the what are you willing to pay value? And this is what makes things like Beanie Babies go nuts. That for some reason, a Beanie Baby, which costs the same thing to make as every other stuffed animal on the planet, and there's really no difference except for the fact that every kid one Christmas wants a Beanie Baby. And so the value of Beanie Babies goes completely through the roof because everybody wants one, right? Or the Tickle Me Elmo. Remember that thing? They got people like stabbing each other in the mall for a Tickle Me Elmo. Like it it just got crazy. The value goes, this is what fine art is. Like, how do you put a price on fine art? Like, how do you put a price on a, on a Rembrandt, Rembrandt painting? You know, and people, because ultimately it's like $4 worth of paint on a $20 canvas, except for the fact that it's a Rembrandt. And so the price is in the millions or whatever. So it's not a, there's no real value for it. It's a, it's a completely um, unproductive asset, except for the fact that everybody happens to want it. And so that makes the price go way, way up. Okay. Here's why I bring this up. And most importantly, here's what I think it has to do with this passage. Given this passage where he says, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. Beware because men are going to deliver you up to authorities. You're going to be beaten. Your family is going to turn on you. You're going to be called worse than the devil. I'm left with this question. How compelling must Jesus have been that given this list, the disciples still went. How awesome must this dude have been that he could go, here is what mission with me is going to look like. It's not going to be pretty. This is what it's going to cost. This is the price of this product. And they were like, sign me up, totally worth it. Like we have to think about it in terms of value. Like something was so attractive and compelling about Jesus. Something was so magnetic about this guy that even when he was completely honest with them and was like, it's probably going to cost you everything. They were like, totally fair. That's a, that's an, that's a good value. What does that say about the product? 
when the price was that high. And you got to think at this point, they didn't have like a systematic theology on salvation yet. Jesus hadn't died and gone on the cross. They hadn't worked that out. They hadn't figured out what this meant. This is just Jesus. This is just his person, his personality, his teaching, the miracles he did, his life. And something was so compelling about it. This isn't heaven and hell. There's something so compelling about this guy. So whatever your metric for valuation, if the cost is high, then the the value is high. You know, so there's something in the value of Jesus that is shown in this cost, in this price. Jesus basically says, you're going to be beaten, you're going to be discouraged, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be made fun of, you're going to be spit on. Who's in? And they all raise their hand. I'm in. Totally worth it. In terms of perceived value, think about this message compared to the message we generally send in church, which is, you know, and I want to be careful here because this isn't all bad, but, uh, So he's basically saying, you have Jesus. You're going with Jesus. It's going to be wickedly expensive. But you'll have the Holy Spirit and you'll have meaning. Who's in? That's what he's saying. This is going to cost a lot. But I'll be with you. And you're going to have this amazing power in the Holy Spirit. You're going to have meaning in your life. Or what we generally do and go, heaven is amazing. You do not want to go to hell when you die. So pray a little prayer up here at the altar and you're in. Low, low cost. Ultimately, low, low cost. Huge reward, low cost. If you were to put that in a timeshare, not a one of us would trust it. I tried to give away free popsicles this weekend. And you know how many people said no to free popsicles? And usually I was like, hey, <laughs> my kids were yelling at me all weekend so I'd go, Hey, you guys want a popsicle? They would be like, the kids would go, you got to say free, Dad. If you don't say free, nobody's going to go. So I'd go, you want a free popsicle? And people would, little kids would go, how much? No, it's free. You can have a popsicle. I don't think so. They would walk off and I'm like, dude, I can't even give stuff away. Because we sense there's no value in it. If you give it away free, there's no value in it. Right? Like if, and, and people just have a sense of that. And by the way, your kids are going to eat popsicles every day after church for like the next two years. I'm really bad at estimating how many things I'm going to need for things. And so we have a lifetime supply of popsicles in there. Yeah. I bought 6,000 popsicles. I don't even think we gave away 1,000. Like we have so many popsicles. It's ridiculous. <laughs> right? I can't even sell free popsicles. Yeah, that's why I'd never make it as a salesman. Dude, on a hot day, it's a hot day and I can't sell a free popsicle. Right. So, and actually we did have a great time. We we by the end of the night we did become the 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 booth where everybody was running to get water and popsicles. So, the concerts going on and like grown people were coming like, "Are you guys with the free water?" Like, yeah. You know, so we were giving it out to everybody that wasn't at the beer garden. And then a few people that had been at the beer garden too long, they would come in like, I need water. <laughs> Stand there for a second. You're like, yeah, have some water. Yeah, it was a, it was a fun evening. But um, 
Yeah, so we, I think sometimes our cell is you get all of heaven, you get everything there is to have, and all you got to do is say a little prayer down here at the altar. And something in that, like, and I'm not even saying that it's, it's much more complicated than that. I'm just saying how much more value is seen in a story like this. Like he's like, this is going to cost you everything. And they were like, sign me up because this is worth it. This is why I like to sell Jesus and not heaven. I think he's worth it. I think he's absolutely worth it. Life with Jesus is better than life without. Absolutely better. I can also say in my life, um, I have doubts. I have confusions. I have frustrations. I don't understand everything. There's a lot of stuff I wish I did. I get discouraged. But I can absolutely swear that life with Jesus is better. Absolutely better than life without. So I would say this. If that sounds crazy to you, if that seems nuts, um, then it's probably kind of like an inside joke. You guys ever been on the outside of an inside joke? When everybody seems to get it and you're like, <laughs> cool, I don't get it. They're like, oh, you had to be there, right? Because that you had to be there. Oh, you totally had to be there. There's a lot of things like that. You only get from the inside, right? Like fantasy football. Fantasy football people. You have to be on the inside to get it. If you're not on the inside, you totally don't get fantasy football. I thought fantasy football was the dumbest thing forever until I joined the league. And then I was like one of those nerds, like, dude, that's 500 yards. Ah! You know, I was totally on the inside. And, and you got to be on the inside. I hear that soccer is cool. I don't get it. I'm on the outside of soccer. Like I, everybody's like, soccer's awesome. And I watch it. I'm like, are you kidding me? I don't even, no one's hit anybody yet. I don't even understand what's happening. Yeah, I don't get soccer at all. I'm on the outside of soccer. But I truly believe that sometimes our faith is like that. Like you almost have to be on the inside to get it. And something about, I mean, the number of people that have no idea why I can't talk about grace without crying. And, and they're like, dude, that dude's got emotional issues. Yeah. And I was like, try it from the inside. You try being a sinner who has felt undeserved love. Somebody who knows he's unworthy and God loves you anyway. Like, you try not to cry. I can't sing Amazing Grace. I can't. I try all the time. Gets me every time. It's different on the inside. And that's what I think is going on here. I think these guys are on the inside. They had walked with Jesus. They had seen Jesus. I don't think there would have been a price high enough that they wouldn't have gone. So as we go to the table tonight, I, uh, I hope to leave um, us with this, that Jesus looked at us broken, beat up, sinful and he valued us very high he decided we were worth the cross that he loved us to the point that he was willing to let his own body be broken and his own blood be spilled that uh, when he did a cost evaluation and he imagined eternity without us um, he said, that's too expensive. I'll pay anything to be with my people. 
And so he valued us very, very high. Um, salvation was never cheap. It was the most expensive thing ever. And so Jesus gladly paid the price. And so I would, um, I guess I would ask you, what's it worth to you? And as we respond, um, and as we imagine ourselves on mission with God, as we imagine ourselves going forth with God, ask yourself, what's it worth to you?